0: This is the podcast of Theophilus Church. For more information, visit our website at theophiluschurch.com. Tonight's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's verses 12 through 16. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless,
1: and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He did not raise Him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised
0: either. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Some 35 years ago, on a night that was very similar to this night, I, as a six-year-old boy, climbed the steps of a baptismal pool in Richardson, Texas, just outside of Dallas, with a white robe on, it was way too big for me, and an organ playing, I descended down into the steps of this baptismal pool to be baptized. I had just that week prayed a prayer at the, the uh, side of my parents' bed to follow Jesus, to accept Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And in the Baptist church, uh, that is quickly that profession of faith is quickly followed by... Baptism by immersion. Those two things are linked together. That you make a believer's profession of faith and then you are baptized by being immersed underwater and coming back up. And so the Sunday after uh, I'd made this profession of faith, I'd prayed this prayer. I went with my parents during the invitation hymn, which happened every Sunday, and I went down and we told the pastor uh, this tall man with a big southern drawl, we told this pastor that I had prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, and would like to follow in obedience in baptism by immersion. And so we set up the calendar for uh, a time to do that on a Sunday evening service. Now, I'm fortunate because even though this is thirty five years ago, there still exists record of this baptism. See, my father, who's here tonight, is an early adopter of technology stuff, and so he had set up in the choir loft an early VHS camcorder trained right on the baptismal pool. And so we have this VHS tape that has been transferred to DVD that now exists as a video file somewhere. And so what I'm about to tell you can be uh, visibly uh, verified. But I'm going to tell you what I remember. I remember arriving at the church early, and I'd already had this conversation with the pastor and with my parents about what baptism was going to be like we talked about how I was going to be asked some questions. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died to save you from your sins? And I would say, I do. Have you accepted Jesus Christ in your heart? I have. Do you promise to follow him as your Lord and Savior? I do. And then at that point, and this is where I started paying really close attention, because I was going to have to cross my arms and sneak one hand up to my nose and prepare to be taken backwards into some water and then forwards back out again. So I was ready for this, as ready as a six-year-old can be, and I got changed into this, like I've already said, this enormous white robe, to symbolize, as we were singing earlier, being washed white as snow. And so I put on this white robe. There were a couple other people being baptized that night. They decided that I would go first. And so I was sort of in the wings of this baptismal pool. I couldn't see what was happening, but I could hear people singing. And then the pastor turned and invited me down. He said, "Brother Andy." would you join me in the waters of baptism? So I came down these steps. It was like a bathtub with steps into it. And the first thing I noticed is the water was warm. I had expected that it would just be cold water, but it was warm. It was very warm water. And I got all the way down in there, and the water came all the way up to my chin. I didn't have a beard then, so my chin is right here. (laughs) The water came all the way up to my chin. And I was like, well, this... This is going to make short work of the baptism part because I'm 90% submerged already. And as he led me over to the center of the baptismal pool, my feet bumped against a milk crate that someone had upturned to act as a little stool. And so I stepped up onto this milk crate, and now I was out of the water up to my armpits. And there's this little plexiglass kind of area so people could sort of see the water level and could see you in it. And so he looked at me and he went through those three questions and I answered what I was supposed to answer. And then he had me cross my arms across my chest and I pinched my nose really hard. I didn't want any water to go up my nose. And he put one hand where my arms were crossed and one hand in the center of my back. And he said, brother Andy, I baptize you in the name of the father and of the son and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, buried with Christ in baptism. And I went under the water. And then I came back up and everybody was clapping and cheering. What I learned is that he said more stuff when I was under the water. He said, buried with Christ in baptism, put me under the water. And then he said, raised to walk in newness of life and brought me back up 35 some odd years ago. The, the thing that the pastor said, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, is something that's commonly said with baptisms of immersion, and it comes from something that Paul wrote. Paul's understanding of baptism, he explores in a couple places, but most notably, I think, in Romans 6 and Colossians 2. And in those places, he links being baptized with participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the earliest days, church has used baptism as a metaphor for resurrection. Baptism reminds us that death is only for a moment, that we will be raised, just like you're only under that water for a moment before you are raised back up. Tonight's phrase in the creed is, I believe in the resurrection of the body, and we're going to explore where this idea comes from, what this particular declaration means, and what maybe we are being invited to do in response. In my exploration of the history of resurrection uh, and the resurrection of the body and all, of that, uh, all that that implies, I'm drawing a lot from uh, this book by Inti Wright. This book is called Surprised by Hope. Uh, N.T. Wright is a brilliant biblical scholar. Uh, he's British, so if you ever look him up on YouTube, he sounds smart even when he's reading a recipe. But uh, he wrote this wonderful series of books. Uh, that kind of walk through basic Christian doctrine, and uh, this one I think is the best one of the bunch, Uh, Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of Church. So a lot of what you're going to hear from me tonight is me just expanding on some of the things that N.T. Wright covers in his book. I highly recommend it if you're interested in Resurrection, Heaven, or the Mission of the Church. One of the things that he does is he goes back and he looks at, well, what did people uh, in ancient Near Eastern times think about resurrection? Like, where did this idea even come from for Christians? And so he explores what the Greeks and Romans and what the Jews thought about resurrection before he pivots to Christianity and says, well, what did Christianity, the earliest Christians, believe about the resurrection of the body? And what he finds is that the Greeks and the Romans, that they had a concept of resurrection as a bodily event, something that would happen to one's body. And they denied that it was a possibility over and over and over again. The only way that the Greeks and the Romans would talk about resurrection was to negate it as a possibility. And a lot of this had to do with their own views of body and spirit. In this very sort of dualistic and pagan world, the body was seen as bad, corrupt, a trap for the good spirit inside of it. And so if you look at a lot of Greek philosophy, a lot of Greek mythology, and the Romans kind of uh, reduxing on that, You see that the goal of most of these pagan religions and philosophical systems is to be liberated from your body. It holds you back. The idea that the body would be resurrected and somehow trap your soul again was abhorrent to Greeks and Romans. They didn't equate resurrection with ghosts or apparitions or visions or dreams. They had other words for those kinds of things. Nor did resurrection for the Greeks and Romans serve as a stand-in for just life after death. They had words and concepts for those things. No, resurrection, when used by the Greeks and the Romans, was referring to a bodily event, something that was seen as bad, not good. The first century Jews were kind of split on resurrection. The most vocal people in the Jewish uh, sector about resurrection were the Sadducees, And they denied that there would be any sort of resurrection. In fact, they tried to trip Jesus up to get him to talk about the resurrection at one point in the Gospels. The Sadducees didn't even really believe that there was much of a concept of life after death, either. For the Sadducees, we died, and that was it. But most of the regular, normal, like, run-of-the-mill Jewish people of the day, they believed in some sort of life after death. They believed in some sort of resurrection... Maybe bodily, maybe not. But it would happen at the end of time, and God would resurrect God's people to live with God. It was all very vague. There was nothing really important about any sort of doctrine of resurrection to the first century Jews. So that's where Christianity emerges from. A denial that the resurrection could be a thing from the Greek and the Roman quarter, and kind of a vague understanding of maybe it's a thing, but maybe it's not that important from the Jewish perspective. But the Christians from the very beginning have this very different perspective on resurrection that seems to come out of nowhere. From the very beginning, Jews that followed Jesus affirmed that Jesus was bodily resurrected. And not only that, that those who follow him would also be bodily resurrected. Some 20th century scholars think that, well, maybe this was just a result of their deep grief over losing their beloved friend and leader, causing them to sort of co-opt some pagan understanding of resurrection and apply that to Jesus. But as we've already seen, that pagan resurrection notion really didn't exist. There was nothing for them to co-opt, really. That wasn't a hope in the pagan system. 20th century scholars have also thought that, well, maybe they were using resurrection as a metaphor for the way that Jesus lives on in our hearts when we remember him and his teachings. But unfortunately, that was not the case either because they kept reiterating over and over again unto death that Jesus experienced a real bodily return from the dead and that we would too. And they're willing to die for that claim, I think somehow makes it credible. And until the 19th and 20th centuries, Christianity has boldly proclaimed this doctrine of bodily resurrection, not only for Jesus, but for his followers as well. Now you know that in the Western uh, history and trajectory of things, the Enlightenment brought the scientific method as a new way of understanding what is true and what is real. It quickly moved from being a new way of understanding what is true true and what is real to the only way of being able to describe what is true and what is real. It became the way of knowing things. So all claims were subject to being tested by the methods of science. Can you observe it? And is it repeatable? If you can do those two things, then we can say that we know it. But that's a new understanding of what it means to know something. And religions across the board came into conflict with that way of knowing almost immediately. Because religions have always asserted that there are other ways of knowing things to be true that can't be neatly described through science. Proponents of science insist that if a thing cannot be known scientifically, then it cannot be known Christianity became subject to this kind of scientific exploration almost immediately in the the Enlightenment. There's been some good things that have happened in Christianity because of that, and there's been some bad things. For example, one of the good things, I think, has to do with the uh, evidence that is mounted using historical biblical criticism, a literary technique applied to the Bible, we've actually been able to show that there's a lot of evidence for the actual historical existence of Jesus and the 12 apostles. That this wasn't some sort of myth or fairy tale that people told, but applying the scientific methods that we would apply to any historical text. We can show that there's great confidence that what these people wrote was true and that the version of the Bible we have now is very close to what must have been written down by the original authors. On the other hand, Miracles have always been problematic when it comes to science. Because miracles, by their very nature, suggest a suspension of the way things are. A suspension of the way things are. They resist scientific categorization. They go against the natural order in very intentional and sometimes disruptive ways. Resurrection would be a big, big suspension of the natural order. Yet Christians have claimed that from the very beginning, death is not the way things are supposed to be, that resurrection is not the exception. Christians claim that life is the way things ought to be, that death is the perversion of that. Christians claim that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he was giving us a taste of what is intended and what will be. Death, like a disease, can be overcome and will be eradicated. The Apostle Paul has a whole lot to say about death and resurrection throughout his letters. We heard a little bit of 1 Corinthians 15 about death and victory over death. But this comes up over and over again. In Philippians 3, Paul writes of his hope to attain the resurrection of the dead, stressing that Jesus will come from heaven to where we are and transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious, that is, his resurrected body. In Colossians 3, Paul urges us to not be discouraged with what we see happening around us. Instead, he says, remember, we have been raised with Christ and that Christ again will appear and we will appear with him in glory. In Romans 8, Paul insists that if the spirit of God lives in us, that same spirit has raised Jesus from the dead and will give life to our mortal bodies as well. In all of these Paul's making the same claim over and over again. He's saying our present embodied experiences, what he refers to often as our earthly or fleshy bodies, our present embodied experiences are only a thin part of the whole story. This present embodied state is subject to death and decay, but Jesus in his resurrection shows us the rest of the story, a glorified and perfected body, something that we will have as well. But it's in 1 Corinthians 15, what we just heard a little bit of a minute ago, that Paul writes the most about resurrection and what it means to be a Christian. This is one of the longest chapters in any of his letters. We number it to 58 verses. And it's one of the most cohesive and succinct things he wrote on any one subject. If you read a lot of Paul's letters, he tends to jump from place to place and meander here and there. It's like he can't sustain a thought to save his life. He also can't end a sentence to save his life. But, He talks about resurrection for a good chunk of 1 Corinthians. He begins the chapter by reminding the church of the facts surrounding Jesus' resurrection. He says, Christ died for our sins, just like the law required. Christ was really buried, and then on the third day, he really rose again from the dead. Paul says he appeared in his physical resurrected body to Peter and the 12 apostles, and then another 500 people saw him, many at the same time. Paul's saying this wasn't a vision, it wasn't a dream, it wasn't an apparition, it was not a hallucination. And then he goes even further than that and he says some of those 500 people are still alive today. He's telling the Corinthians, you don't have to take my word for it, you can go find these people that saw Jesus physically resurrected from the dead. But then he points out that there are those those in Corinth that are going around teaching that the resurrection didn't happen, can't happen, it won't happen. And Paul says in the verses we heard tonight, that if they're right, that if resurrection can't happen, then not even Jesus was raised from the dead, and that our preaching and our faith are meaningless. He says, without the resurrection of Jesus, without the hope of resurrection of the dead, there is no Christianity, and those who follow Christ are liars, spreading lies about God. He then asserts that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And that this is just the beginning. He calls Christ's resurrection the first fruits, the beginning of more to come. At this point, 1 Corinthians 15 takes this really interesting turn because all of a sudden he like puts on the lens of Genesis 1 through 3 and he starts retelling the Genesis story. Paul says that just like Adam, just like through Adam, death entered into the world through Christ, resurrection enters into the world, that just like because of Adam, we all have to experience death through Christ, we all get to experience resurrection. He says in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. How does this happen? What's it going to look like? Paul anticipates these questions, even asks some of them rhetorically, but he says that they miss the point. He uses the analogy of a seed, as he continues to write in 1 Corinthians 15, saying, unless it dies, it can't live. He says the seed is just the first fruits of, what the, of the glory of what is to come, what, he, what it is to produce. Similarly, he says, right now we can only see and experience the physical part of our nature, but one day we'll be able to experience the spiritual and the physical part of our nature at the same time in fullness. What is presently perishable, he writes, will be made imperishable. What is presently mortal will be made immortal. Death will be swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ. And then he ends that chapter saying, so because of all this, keep on working for the Lord because what you do is not in vain. Paul certainly thinks that bodily resurrection matters. And not just Jesus' bodily resurrection, but our bodily resurrection matters. He thinks it's critical to the existence of the church. Paul does not paint a picture of us being whisked away to heaven to experience some otherworldly disembodied experience for eternity. Paul imagines a future in which we are raised from the dead as Jesus was, to walk on the earth as Jesus did, and to live there forever without perishing. Far from abandoning creation, Paul asserts that through God, that God through Jesus redeems that creation. Now, we may have a lot of questions for Paul, too. Some of the ones that I've heard from people as I talk about resurrection and physical resurrection well, what does this mean for people who are cremated? What about people whose bodies were dismembered through accident or war? What about people who are lost at sea? What happens to those people in the resurrection? The early church fathers asked all of these questions as well, and some much, much weirder ones. Here's my favorite. If a cannibal eats part of a human, when the cannibal is resurrected, what will happen to the parts of him that, were, that generated new human flesh in the cannibal? Will those parts of his body be resurrected as parts of his body, or will they go and be part of the body that he ate? And if it's not part of the body that he ate, will that body have holes in it? That's a real question by one of the saints of the church. But again, with Paul, I think that these questions miss the point. See, we may not be able to make sense of the mechanism, the means of resurrection. In fact, the interesting thing I think about the gospel accounts of the resurrection is that we're just told it happened. We don't get a peek into what happened. Jesus was put in the tomb, dead. The next thing we know, he's walking around alive. The point is that we have some idea of what resurrection will look like by looking at Jesus Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection. So what can we anticipate, even if we don't understand the means? I think we can anticipate that in our bodily resurrection, we will somehow be recognizable. Jesus was recognizable to his disciples. There was continuity in his physical appearance before and after his death. In fact, in his resurrection body, he still bore the wounds. Of his crucifixion. I hope I still have some tattoos. But there were some differences as well. Jesus was seemingly able to walk through walls or appear and disappear in different places instantaneously, something he didn't do before his resurrection. We know that on average, the human body replaces every cell it contains every seven years. That means that the physical person you are now is not the same physical person on a molecular level that you were a decade ago. But there's still continuity. You still look a whole lot like that person, even though there's not an atom of you that was the same. C.S. Lewis, in his masterful book, The Great Divorce, imagines that our resurrection bodies will somehow be more solid, more real, than our bodies are now. It could well be that we look back At this part of our embodied time, and we see these bodies in this state as being only a shadow or an apparition of what our glorified bodies are meant to be. In the resurrection, we will be more who we were created to be, not less. Those bodies will be immortal. They'll be temporally immortal in that they're created on the other side of death. But they'll be ontologically immortal as well. They will not be able to experience death or sickness or suffering because those things will be gone. Why does any of this matter? Because in the resurrection rests the ultimate in Christian hope. And we need a message of hope today. See, we're a people that are surrounded by death and despair. Death is the ultimate form of estrangement. It estranges us from one another. It estranges us from God. How do we have hope in the midst of all of the pain and all of the suffering that we experience on a daily basis? What even is hope in a world like this? I'm greatly indebted to our own Kyle Isaacson for sharing with me an academic article that he was writing on the theology of hope. As it applies specifically to therapists. Therapists. In this article that he shared with me, he explores the despair that therapists often face because of the pain and the suffering that they encounter every day in their clients and their patients. And while this paper is oriented towards the providers of mental health care, I found Kyle's exploration of hope and despair to be so resonant with what so many of us navigate on a daily basis to one degree or another. Drawing from the the theologian Jürgen Moltmann, Kyle observes that hope is the expectation of the fulfillment of a promise. Where a promise doesn't exist, hope cannot exist. Kyle writes, hope pulls together chronologically the past and the future into the present as the link between the received promise and the eventual fulfillment of that promise. Hope then results in these two contradictory things. One, it acknowledges that in the present circumstance, the promise is not yet fulfilled. The thing that we hope for isn't here right now. There is a not yet aspect to hope. The second thing it does, though, is that it engages faith in the one that gives the promise. That what is promised will one day come about. As Paul writes in Romans 8, hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. A simple example, if I promise you that we are going to eat yumbulls tonight, I create the possibility of hope for dinner. If you engage that hope, you simultaneously affirm two contradictory things. One, you affirm your own hunger and the non-existence of yumbulls in your hands right now unless you're snacking in church. The other thing, though, that you engage is that you trust me when I say that there will be yumbles for dinner, or you trust Cameron when he says that. Oh, yeah, Taylor. (laughs) You trust Taylor. He said it. But if either of those things are lacking, you won't have hope for dinner. If you're not hungry right now, you don't need to hope for dinner. Because that promise doesn't apply to you. If you don't trust Taylor, then you won't hope for dinner either, because you don't believe that it can actually come about. When we find ourselves in a place of despair, what's often happening is that we're reflecting on the dissonance between the way things are and the way we want things to be. The realization of what is promised is out of our control. And we get caught up thinking about the chasm that exists between our present circumstances and that which has been promised to us, and our inability to do anything to make the promise come about. And then we sink into despair. And despair often lands us in two places. On the one hand, we may find ourselves in a place of cynicism, where we start thinking that that which is promised will never come about. The other place is triumphalism. The idea that the promise is already fulfilled despite all of the evidence to the contrary. I'm just going to ignore my present hunger and pretend I'm eating a yum bowl right now. Both of these things, cynicism and triumphalism, make hope impossible. When people start to despair about the defeat of death, despair that the resurrection of the body is just some metaphor it usually goes one of two ways on the one hand they become cynical of this idea of bodily resurrection or the end of suffering and death because it can't be scientifically proven with all the pain around us how can we possibly say that there will be a day when there's when the pain is all gone the Christian promise of the resurrection and the defeat of death sounds nice, but the gritty reality of our suffering and brokenness causes a lapse of faith, a kind of hopelessness. On the other hand, there are those within the Christian camp who choose to remain blissfully ignorant of suffering and death, who declare that this world is not our home and that what really matters is that our soul has been saved and we have a future heavenly existence to look forward to. What we do now doesn't matter. Just get your soul in the right place so that when you die, you can go to heaven. All the pain and suffering and death is explained away as part of God's divine plan. It's beyond our comprehension. While that sounds optimistic and hopeful, it's really just a form of escapism. Another way of expressing our despair and our anxiety, sticking our fingers in our ears and saying, la, 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 and hoping it all goes away. Underneath these assertions lies a painful hopelessness that that which we fear and which we choose to ignore really is real. So what do we do when we've lost hope? How do we find our way back when we've landed in a place of cynicism or despair? If it was as simple as remembering the promise that engendered hope in the first place, well, then we could all just do that and move on. Just remember what was promised to you. But it's more complex than that. The renewal of the promise that restores hope must acknowledge the present reality without getting overwhelmed by it. In short, we have to act. We have to take some sort of action in order to regain the hope that has been lost. And again, Kyle offers three ways. Three ways we can act to restore hope. The first of these is protest. This follows in a long biblical tradition of lament and of the prophets. It's when we demand that God show up and act like God ought to act. God, you have promised us something. Why aren't you keeping your promise? Things aren't the way they ought to be. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from us? Forever? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? When we engage in protest to God about the suffering and pain and the death that exists all around us, we're remembering the promise that this isn't the way things ought to be. And we're remembering our faith in God, that God has the power to change the way things ought to be, to change the way things are to the way things ought to be. In fact, God has promised that he will do so. The Psalms are filled with laments of this nature. Taking our despair and anger to God and demanding that God change things is one of the most biblical things that we can do. In demanding that God keep his promises, we restore our faith in the promise and in the promise giver. The second action that Kyle suggests that we can take is worship. When we sing songs together as an act of hope, We remember and we affirm the promises of God, the trustworthiness of God the promise giver, the ways in which God has kept promises in the past, and the conviction that he will keep promises in the future. This requires a kind of engagement on our part as we sing songs together, an attention to the words that we're singing and their meaning, because we're not just making music together, we're not just killing time before the sermon. When we sing together, we have to be attentive to those words that are on the screen because we're declaring God's truth to one another and to ourselves. That's why we sing a song like we did just before I came up. You are good, good, you are good. Even when we don't feel like God is good. We're making a declaration about a truth about God. And that declaration, independent of our feelings, starts to engender hope. The third action that we can take is one of connection. See, we were created to live in relationship. As we live and love together, as we share in one another's pain and suffering, we become glimmers of God's promises to one another. We start to see the way in which God is setting things right. We find that in intentional engagement with one another, God's promises start to be restored in our very midst. More particularly, I want to suggest that the promise of the resurrection of our bodies means that what we do with our physical bodies right here and right now matters. Recall that in the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our labor right here, right now, matters. So in despair... We must engage the hope of resurrection and we must act, we must labor in three particular ways. One, we must act for justice. Justice is embodied protest. We meet pain and suffering in the world with action to alleviate it and to eradicate it. We must work for more just relationships at all levels because, in so doing, we are foreshadowing God's just kingdom. We have to work for climate justice at all levels and counteract these escapist narratives that see our earth as disposable. We were given this earth to steward and care for. We were created from this earth to live on this earth for eternity. It is an affront to the creator to flippantly use and abuse his creation out of some misguided sense that we're destined for some disembodied otherworldly eternity. When we work for justice, we declare that we have seen and we know the way things ought to be, and we're going to be about the task of setting them right. We are going to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. The second way we must act, we must act in beauty. When we create beautiful things, we embody worship. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, He puts it this way, to make sense of and celebrate a beautiful world through the production of artifacts that are themselves beautiful is a part of the call to be stewards of creation, as was Adam's naming of the animals. Genuine art is thus itself a response to the beauty of creation, which itself is a pointer to the beauty of God. Whether it's in song or in dance or in painting or in gardening, we worship God When we make beautiful things, we declare the goodness of God and his promise of a renewed and restored creation when we bring beauty into this world. And the third way we must act is we must act through evangelism. We embody connection when we realize that a holistic engagement with the other means inviting them to join in a relationship with God as well as in relationships to others. Now, I know that some of us have some particular hang-ups around the word evangelism. We think about specific methods or techniques that we were taught or that we were subject of that seem coercive or thin or disingenuous. Yet we must not let the critique of a particular method nullify the mandate to invite others into a real dynamic relationship with God through Christ. Because we're not merely concerned with saving someone's soul, but with seeing one's whole life redeemed, now and for eternity. You see, evangelism is the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, and we often reduce the gospel to some ham-fisted choice between heaven or hell. We must renew our understanding of the gospel in all of its power. It is the declaration that the world around us is broken precisely because it is. We see this brokenness all around us in the form of sin and death and decay. But the gospel says that God, the creator of this world, Jesus Christ, the true Lord of this earth, is making all things new. You, me, all of creation is being made new. This renewal and this restoration is a gift just waiting to be received by us and enjoyed by us forever. That's the gospel that we take to the world in evangelism. When we engage in these three acts, justice, beauty, evangelism, we will see hope restored in us and through us. I began by telling you my baptism story unpacking it as a metaphor for resurrection. He talked about how in early Christianity, the doctrine of resurrection of the body was understood as something literal, a literal raising of the body from the grave, something that we can all anticipate. Not a metaphor for life after death, but the beginning of life after life after death. But the New Testament is full of metaphors. In one of his letters, Paul uses the metaphor of the body To describe the church. He calls the church the body of Christ. We, Theophilus, we are the body of Christ. And as a body, we are subject to all of the ailments that a body can suffer. This body can grow. This body can mature. This body can become sick. This body can suffer. This body can die. And in a very real way, this body has experienced a death. A year ago, we experienced a kind of dying as our friends and pastors, the Swobodas, left this community to follow God's leading to what God had placed before them next. We've experienced the pain and disorientation of death for 12 months now. At times, we've looked around us and we don't recognize what we see. Things feel different. They operate different. There are faces missing from among us. There are new faces that we haven't yet come to recognize. We have grieved and mourned this death, even as we have welcomed Cameron as our new pastor. For some of us, this death has resulted in a kind of despair. And it has become manifest in cynicism that we will never recover as a congregation, that it's only a matter of time before we close our doors for good. For others, this despair has shown up as a kind of blissful ignorance of the pain and change we've experienced over the last year. We've deceived ourselves into thinking that we can carry on as we always have done, ignoring the disruptions in things like our finances and our volunteers. Brothers and sisters, I am here to tell you tonight that the Lord has resurrection in store for this body. With Paul, I declare that these present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that Christ will reveal in us. We're destined for glory, friends. Brothers and sisters, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We have been called according to his purpose, friends. Brothers and sisters, what shall we then say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We can declare with David the 30th Psalm. We exalt you, Lord, for you lifted us up out of the depths. You did not let our enemies gloat over us. Lord our God, we called for you to help and you healed us. You, Lord, brought us up from the realm of the dead. You spared us from going down to the pit. So sing the praises of the Lord, you His faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. When we felt secure, we said, we will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored us, you made our royal mountains stand firm. But when you hid your face, we were dismayed. To you, Lord, we called. To the Lord, we cried for mercy. What is gained if we are silenced and we go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to us. Lord, be our help. You turned our wailing into dancing. You removed our sackcloth and you clothed us with joy. That our hearts may sing your praises and may not be silent. Lord, we praise you forever. So we come to the table tonight for communion you're going to see right here a bowl of water. This bowl is an invitation for you to act tonight. For those of you who are despairing of the promises of God, I invite you to dip your fingers into this water as an act of justice, a protest against what is broken in this world, and a declaration of hope in God who promises to set things right. I invite you to dip your fingers into this water as an act of beauty and worship, a physical interaction with the created order that points us to the creator. I invite you to dip your fingers into this water as an act of evangelism, a commitment to declare the good news of a holistic redemption and reconciliation to all that we connect with in our words and through our deeds. For those of you who have not lost hope, I invite you to dip your fingers into this water as an act of remembering this body's journey and our future together. I invite you to dip your fingers into this water as an act of remembering your own baptism. I invite you to dip your fingers into this water as an act of anticipating the resurrection of the body. serving communion, you can uh, join me at the front. You see, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after dinner, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me when you come down tonight and you tear off a piece of that body and you dip it into the cup, remember the crucified, buried, and resurrected Lord. Let's pray. God of the resurrection, take our despair and restore us to hope. Remind us that what we do now echoes into eternity. Lord, may we see your goodness in the land of the living. Amen. This table is prepared. This table is open to everyone. Come and be renewed by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the first fruits of the resurrection. Lord of creation, giver of the promise, the hoped-for one. Would you stand as we sing together?
1: As we go this week and you find yourself going through your week, and internally your heart and your spirit feels like it's a place—it's in a place of despair, or you find yourself in a place of hopelessness. Tonight I pray that you take with you the charge and the courage to press into that and allow your spirit to protest and trust God with that, and trust others in your community with that. If you find yourself throughout this week, and life is a little bit dull. Produce beauty, be creative, allow that to unleash. And if we've grown to shame of the gospel, may we press in to the true depths of the gospel and rekindle a passion for the good news and share that with others. Let's take this charge with us this evening and impact The relationships in our lives, the people around us, and the world that we live in. Go in peace, enjoy yumbles, and enjoy communion together this evening.
0: You've been listening to the podcast of Theophilus Church. We hope you've been inspired and challenged by what you've heard. For more information, visit our website at TheophilusChurch.com.